Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 37, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I'm author of the newly released book, Spiritual Grit, and the two years ago book, Jesus-Centered Life, and the three years ago, Jesus-Centered Bible. I was the general editor for that. I wasn't actually author of the Bible. Uh, so if you hear any rumors about that out there, that's just not true. I did not write the Bible. But I did serve as general editor for this special Bible called the Jesus-Centered Bible, which has eight or nine or ten special features that wherever you're reading the Bible, they just draw you into Jesus magnetically. There's never been anything like it. If you don't have one and you're listening to this podcast, if you got one, you would love it. Just take my word for it. So there'll be a link to all of these things on our podcast page, uh, and I'll tell you more about that at the very end. I'm also part of the creative team that produced a new resource called the Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. And it's no coincidence that uh, through the entire month of September, we're going to focus on discipleship. And I, I've spent the last, the better part of the last couple of years thinking more deeply about what discipleship is and the ways that we have tried to help form and shape people into disciples in the Church has sometimes uh, patterned itself after the way Jesus did that, and sometimes not. And there's some surprising things that we that our team explored and then put into this resource to help people uh, grow in their discipleship maturity through the lens of friendship. So that's what we're going to explore today, discipleship through the lens of friendship. And we all know that discipleship itself is sort of a Christian-y word that you only ever hear in the Church, and it's you know, something we're supposed to be being and doing. We're supposed to be a disciple, and we're supposed to do discipling things, and we're supposed to live like a disciple. And But we often—it's it, one of those things where it, we hear it a lot, but we don't slow down to consider, well, well, how much do I know about that, and what is it I'm really doing, and what does a disciple actually look like, and what does a disciple actually do? So that's what we're going to focus on uh, in this episode. We're going to get at this through— something that Jesus said that all of us have heard before, especially if you've grown up in the Church, that we very often don't realize the impact and the tipping point in all of history that this little thing that Jesus said really represents. So um, I'm going to leave that there for you in just a second. We'll, we'll get to that thing that Jesus said that's a tipping point in history in just a minute, but first we have to slow down a little bit and understand some context before we get to what he said. So I want you to sort of take yourself back to the time of Jesus and put yourself in the shoes of one of his disciples. Their reality is so vastly different from our reality. Now, I just got back from Kenya about four days ago. Uh, I spent uh, about 12 days total um, traveling in Kenya, and I have to tell you, the first three or four days that I was in Nairobi, I was I was actually serving with a ministry team here from group and a few others from outside of group. We were putting on a ministry conference and 
helping out at an orphanage that we have a relationship with and just experiencing some of the culture of Kenya at the same time. So I I have to say, though, for the first three or four days that I was in Nairobi, which is a city of six million people, um, I felt disoriented, uh, sort of overwhelmed, and even a little bit depressed, uh, because what what happens is that you, you're on a plane for 20 hours, you land in the middle of Africa, which I've never been to before, and you walk out of the terminal, and you're in a vastly different culture, with vastly different norms and expectations and, and rhythms. And Nairobi is a huge city that is... Uh, exemplified in some respects by the abject poverty of the Kenyan people. And it took me three or four days just to settle down a little bit because of the extreme poverty that I was experiencing on the streets of Nairobi. And by about the fourth day, I I feel like I was, uh, the, the Holy Spirit was able to help me to just relax and open myself uh, and be myself in Nairobi. But up until then, I was really struggling with all of the vast differences I was experiencing. Well, going back to the time of Jesus and putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples is kind of like that. We think we understand it because we're, our only context that we're, we're thinking about is our current context. All of the norms and values and practices and rhythms of our everyday life here in 21st century Western living is visited upon how we experience things Jesus said and did. But if you backtrack to this vastly different time, where all of those things were incredibly different than what we experience today, the things that Jesus said and did take on new significance. So I want us to explore what formed the disciples' expectations for a relationship with God. I mean, how are they taught to see God and to see religious authority? It's vastly different than the norms that we experience in those arenas. So I I found a a psychological study. This is interesting. uh, It was in a psychological journal. A study was done on the Torah of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. And what they were looking for is what, what characterized the encounters and the relationship between God and his people in the first five books of the Bible. They looked at this from a psychological perspective, and they used a psychological framework to try to pick out the primary themes and the primary characteristics of people encountering God. And the results of this psychological study showed that the most frequent theme in these what they call relationship episode narratives about God and his people, is that, first of all, that God was helpful. So meaning that people saw God as a source of help. But then listen to this, two less frequent but also highly repetitive themes that this psychological study found were that people also felt that God controls or even hurts the other person. So think about the tension between these two insights. They're looking at the way that people saw the norm of who God is and how to relate to him, and the tension was that they believed that God was helpful, but that he could also hurt you. And he wants you to do what he wants you to do. So in this context, their reality 
the way they saw God, the way they related to God, was that he is the sort of distant master, and we are the servants. And in that context, you can see why obedience would become paramount, because your whole understanding of the relationship with God is that, yes, he's a source of great help, but watch out, he could also hurt you, and I experience him as controlling things, pulling the trigger, uh, pulling the strings on things. So the kind of relationship you had with God, I would say, was a little bit uneasy, was a little bit uh, off balance all the time. You, you, You were in desperate need of him, but you also understood that he was the master and you were the servant, and your primary focus needed to be obedience. So therefore, in the Old Testament, a relationship with God was mitigated by rituals and by sacrifices and by rote practices and by mediations in the relationship. This was the very definition of what you would call a difficult relationship. If you believe that there is a great power who can be helpful but also can be hurtful, then you need rituals and sacrifices and rote practices to try to mitigate that relationship, to try to make it more less chaotic and more predictable, is another way of putting it. So I mentioned that that I was in Kenya for 12 days, and I, I had to quickly adapt myself to the norms of that culture. One of the things we did as a ministry team is we, we led a ministry conference for two days for youth and children's pastors. We landed on a Thursday night in Nairobi, and by 8 o'clock the next morning we were kicking off this ministry conference. So I had very little time to even acclimate, acclimate to the diet, the climate, anything, let alone the culture. And here I am trying to communicate to people um, a Jesus-centered approach to ministry, not knowing any of their real context or what their norms and uh, typical patterns of ministry are, none of that. I'm just sort of trying to learn on the fly, and the way that I lead is not uh, by—like, I'm not a talking head. I I create a highly interactive experiential environment for this, which is great, but it also means that when you're in a highly interactive environment, what people say back is completely different than what they might say back in the United States when you're throwing something out there for them. So you're constantly off-balance in a culture that you don't understand— And the third day I was there, I preached at three services of an Anglican church in the middle of a slum in Nairobi. Talk about not really understanding the context or where people are coming from. And I remember one of the—I did three services. The first service was what they called their youth service, and youth in Kenya are 18 to 34. And so it was basically a young adult, maybe you might call it more contemporary service in this Anglican church— and um, I used an example where I referred to black holes, and I was trying to describe what a black hole was. And I could tell just by the way that that went over that that was a totally foreign concept to the people I was talking to. And I had to think on the fly, oh, I need to use a different example to get at the thing that I was talking about for the next two services, because that's a terrible example, because it just doesn't communicate. Well, with a Western American audience, of course talking about a black hole is sort of a common thing in our vernacular. People may not know a great deal about a black hole, but they know the basics of what it is. So I was a- I'm able to communicate that well in, in, in uh, Western culture. There in 
the slums of Nairobi, it didn't work so well. So I needed to understand some of the cultural givens and norms in order to communicate well there. So I was always felt like I was just pedaling my bike as fast as I could to take in as much as I could and observe as much as I could about these cultural norms. One of the things I noticed that was true both in the Anglican church that was there and also in the Maasai culture of Kenya is that hierarchical relationships are very important. So for instance, in the ministry conference, the other pastors and ministry leaders that were there at the conference when it was time for lunch, they had a special place set aside for them and for our team to eat lunch away from the participants. We literally walked past the participants who are walking through an outdoor sort of buffet line um, into the comfort of an indoor room where everything was already set up for us and we were served. And it, it felt very uncomfortable for me. I, I would never do that in a typical setting. I would sit with the participants. I would talk with them. But in this Anglican setting, the hierarchy of leadership was underscored over and over again. And I, since I was a leader, I was treated special, and I had a special room with special food, and uh, we were sectioned away from the un, uh, discomfort of the outside. And it made me very, very uncomfortable, but it was very much a part of church culture there in Kenya. So, for instance, I couldn't just leave and say, you know, this isn't right, I want to go sit with the participants. It wouldn't have made any sense to my hosts. So uh, I also was in a Maasai village where um, it, it was striking to, to learn that uh, I, I was actually meeting with about 19 or 20 pastors from the surrounding area um, in connection with a couple of people from World Relief that had taken me to this village to meet with these pastors. And we were just listening to them for about three and a half hours. We were uh, trying to learn about what their experience as pastors in Maasai villages in, in Kenya was like. And one of the things that uh, one of the pastors said was it's a real struggle uh, financially. In his church, his typical offering per week on a Sunday was about $2. And he was basically saying the obvious. There's no way that I can live on $8 a month. I have to scramble around to find other ways to feed my family as well. And we asked, well, what what is the source of of these financial restrictions that you're experiencing in your church? And he basically said, well, women in our society cannot own any property. and Only men can own property, and so, and the women are the only ones who come to my church. The men don't come. So the women don't have any money to give. It's all owned by the men. Well, Here's another example of a hierarchical structure where men are way elevated over women in this culture. And to understand the how to communicate in a culture like that, you'll need to understand that kind of hierarchical norm in that culture. So it's a way of also seeing how the Old Testament people saw their relationship with God. They saw a clear hierarchy in this relationship, and they, they knew that they were on the servant side of that hierarchy, so they needed to behave a certain way to stay in the good graces of God. That, that was their reality. So now let's accentuate the difference between these kind of norms that, these, that the disciples were living under. This was their expectation for who God is and what a relationship with him was like. So let's accentuate the difference between that 
and what Jesus was slowly introducing to his disciples. We have to acknowledge that, first off, all over the New Testament, all over Jesus' encounters with others in his teachings, we see this same servant-master relationship described and embraced. It's fascinating that Jesus doesn't come into this time in history and wipe out all of their cultural understandings. What he does instead is infect them. He begins by planting seeds of something different in that culture, but he doesn't arrive, just like I didn't arrive in Kenya and say, uh, you know, this, this business you have of elevating men over women is just flat wrong. You guys need to stop that. Um, well, how would that uh, engender any kind of opportunity to bring change and transformation? It wouldn't. Um, I have to enter in differently, and Jesus entered into this time in history differently. So all over the New Testament, you see Jesus embracing some of the language of the servant-master relationship. Let me give you a couple of examples. In John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26, here's what it says. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. So those who love their life in this world will lose it, and those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Do you hear the master-servant language there? Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. So this makes sense to the disciples. This is language that makes sense to them within their context. And in Matthew 20, verses 24 to 28, here's another example of this master-servant kind of mentality. This is uh, Jesus responding to James and John's mother, who has asked him to put her sons in seats of honor in the kingdom of God. And so the rest of the disciples overhear this, and they get furious, just like you might imagine. So here's, here's how the story goes. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Well, it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave." just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here Jesus is using servant language again and elevating it, basically saying that uh, in this context, don't be thinking that you're the master when when it comes to these kinds of relationships. When you have authority, don't think of yourself as the master. Think of yourself rather as the servant, the one that's under, not over. So Jesus here is referencing... The, the common way that people think about God and a relationship with God here. But then comes the tipping point, when Jesus reveals a new way of seeing God and a new way of relating to him. So he's been patient and patient and patient along the way. He's slowly infected the understanding that his disciples and others have about a relation, what a relationship with God um, is supposed to look like. He's slowly planting little seeds of change in this, and then comes this tipping point in John chapter 15, 10-17. It's Jesus speaking here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you keep my commands, now listen to that language, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So this is starting out exactly the way his disciples would expect. A master gives commands, a servant responds to his commands. But watch how Jesus turns this on on its ear. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. So he's he's the master about to make a command to the servant, and here is his command. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So I can't emphasize enough. He's putting this in the form of a command, but he's essentially saying he's co-opting a commandment by inviting them into relationship. So he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And here's the tipping point. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. So here he is totally upending the mindset, the norm of the master-servant relationship, and he's using master-servant language to say, it's a new day. My command for you now, I could just imagine him saying this with a smile on his face, my new command for you, and they're just leaning in, okay, what's the next thing that we're supposed to be obedient to? My new command for you is, I want to be friends. And I want you to be my friend, and I want to be your friend, and I want you to be in me, and I want I and I want myself to be in you. I want intimacy. Whoa, what an atom bomb in the history of the world. Jesus has worked his way forward to this moment when he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I made known to you. So he's saying, I'm changing the game. It's no longer a master-servant relationship. Now it's friend-to-friend. And not just any kind of friend, not an acquaintance kind of friendship. I want intimacy. I want an intimate friendship. He's really calling us out of the safety of a master-servant relationship, where our primary focus is simply obedience, and the nature of the relationship is really functional and hierarchical, and he's calling us into something much more intimate, immersive, and collaborative. So in a master-servant relationship, the, the roles are very defined. What each person is supposed to do is, is well-defined. And if you're the servant role, obedience is your primary mission, and your, your job is simply to listen to what's told to you and do it. And Jesus here is saying, nope, not any longer. From now on, it's friend to friend. We're going to do this together. I want to I do stuff together with you. I don't want to throw down edicts for you to follow any longer. I want us to relate together and to adventure together and to fulfill um, our common job description together, which is to set captives free. Let's do it together. Now, I say that, that, that he's calling us out of the safety of this master-servant relationship because the truth is the head is safer than the heart. 
It feels a lot safer, in a way, to be a servant simply following a master's um, commands. It's safer. You, you kind of know the boundaries, you know what you're supposed to do, but in a relationship where there's give and take and there's risk involved, it's, it's a lot riskier. So relationships are, by definition, simply rife with risk. The greater the risk, actually, the greater the potential of intimacy. And the less risk and the less trust, the less intimacy you have. So there's not a lot of intimacy on the, uh, just on the surface between a master-servant relationship, because the two don't relate as, as those who are friends. They're relating according to their functional role. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to live safely like that with you any longer. Um, I'm changing the game. From now on, we're living by the, the lens of relationship, and it means I'm calling you into something riskier. Instead of just following the steps that you need to follow and following the commands that, that you see in Scripture, now I'm inviting you into something that's a lot riskier. So remember, by the way, the point of all of this is restoration. Jesus came to restore our pre-fall intimacy with God, meaning that before Adam and Eve uh, bit of the apple and betrayed their relationship with God and sin entered the world, there was a kind of close intimacy between God and his creation that Jesus is attempting to restore by coming again. He's not just coming to die on a cross to give us eternal life. He's coming to restore something that God wants, which is a close, intimate relationship with his creation. And in fact, it's not just restoration Jesus is after. It's something even deeper than that. Because prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had no brokenness and no distrust to work through in their lives. Um, They were the first to distrust God. Um, and after that, we've infected that seed. But for those of us who live after the fall, uh, we have all kinds of brokenness and broken trust to work through in order to experience intimacy in our relationships. What I'm saying is that intimacy for us is a lot riskier than intimacy was for Adam and Eve before the fall, because we have to risk all of the fears and insecurities and brokenness we have inside to to establish deeper relationship with each other and with God. So in the beginning, God created beauty, and he gave that beauty to his creation to tend and to rule over. He gave away the thing that he created and gave it as a gift to humanity. And their relationship was therefore free of shame, it was full of intimacy, and it was fueled by trust. And then, of course, all of that changed. So I want to throw out to you that I think in the Church, discipleship and the way we practiced it is a head-first thing. How much do you know? How much have you memorized? Um, How many passages do you know from heart? Can you make a good case from your head for the existence of Jesus or the reality of creation or any of the things that we're told a disciple needs to know? And that's a dead giveaway in in the first place. Is discipleship about knowing stuff in our head or knowing stuff in our heart? And I want to suggest to you that what Jesus was planting was a heart-knowing first. So discipleship, in the way that we practice it in the Church, 
I think, has maximized safety over risk. It has gravitated back to the kind of relationship that Jesus said, I don't want any longer, a master-servant relationship, where we as servants simply learn what the master wants and follow it. Well, Jesus says, I don't want that kind of relationship anymore. I'm calling you into something different and deeper. It doesn't mean that we're not obedient to to what Jesus wants us to do, but the obedience comes from a different place than a master-servant relationship. The obedience comes from a place of passion and intimacy, the same way that I'm not obedient to my what my wife wants in my marriage relationship because she's master over me. I'm obedient because love drives me, my obedience in that relationship. So our calling is to explore the depth of friendship with Jesus in all of its norms, its new norms. So how do friends build intimacy and trust? Well, there is a primary way that we do that, and I've already mentioned it many times. We simply risk with each other. So um, if I were to kind of deconstruct the story of my relationship with Bev, um, we've been married now for uh, 28 years, almost 30 years now, and we've had uh, a long journey out of our own brokenness and distrust and um, dysfunction to uh, wind our way along this journey toward intimacy and trust. We've had a lot to overcome. And I've said before in this podcast, early on in our relationship, uh, when you're married, all of a sudden, all the little dark nooks and crannies of your soul get exposed. Somebody has a flashlight all of a sudden, they're shining it around in there, and that absolutely terrified me, uh, because I had really been living my life without really understanding it for a long time, um, hidden. There's lots of hidden places in my soul that I didn't want any flashlight shining on. It wasn't hidden sin or anything like that. It was really uh, the, the places of fear and insecurity and distrust that I had developed over a lifetime of brokenness. And uh, so in marriage, those things began to be exposed in me, and I became more and more desperate to keep them hidden, and it created a lot of tension and a lot of damage in our relationship, which eventually led to us separating for three months. My wife asked me to move out. That's the short end of that story. That's the short version of that story. Um, but what happened during that time is that the thing that I feared the most, which is perhaps the, the loss of my marriage, was right in my face, and it surfaced all of this uh, chaos and brokenness and fear in me, it brought it all to the surface. I mean, every waking moment during the three months that I was separated from Bev, I could not stop thinking about how afraid I was, that I was going to lose the, th- the, the person that meant the most to me, and that then what would I be? I would be exposed for the poser that I knew that I was underneath everything, and it just frightened me. I, I was desperate. But uh, during one of our counseling sessions, uh, we, we met with a brilliant counselor, sometimes together, sometimes separately. During one of our counseling sessions, when we were about two months into the separation, all of this fear and insecurity and brokenness and uh, hiddenness came bubbling up uh, like a volcanic lava in me and came spilling out of me, and I couldn't stop my sobs. And it was in that moment, it was probably the most vulnerable moment of my life to that point, 
And that vulnerability was being expressed right in front of our counselor, but more to the point, right in front of Bev. It was the most vulnerable I'd ever been in front of her because what was coming up out of me was my deepest brokenness, and she saw it in me. And I had to leave the room because I couldn't stop crying, and I drove my car about a quarter mile away and just sat near a field and sobbed until I couldn't sob any longer. But something broke in me then. The thing that I'd been hiding in the darkness was surfaced in me. I took the risk in that meeting to show myself as I really was, and I had never done that in my relationship with Bev before. People around me would have said, boy, you're always vulnerable with Bev, but they had no idea the vulnerability that I was hiding. And that was a tipping point in our relationship where I trusted her to see the darkest brokenness in my soul for what it was. Uh, And that started a journey back toward intimacy, toward trust. But it started with risk. Later on, I joined a men's group. Uh, I've mentioned this in the podcast before as well. That was a kind of a scary men's group because the guy that led it was, well, he was scary. (laughs) He was intimidating. Uh, I think I said before on the podcast, one of the first things he did in one of our first meetings, uh, one of, uh, there was a missionary amongst the group, and he was uh, home on furlough, and we were each sharing our story, and this man was basically sharing a story of how a key supporter of his missionary work over the years had decided to pull out and wasn't supporting him anymore, and he was describing how hard this was, and and uh, the leader of the group stopped him and, and looked at the rest of us and said, how are the rest of you experiencing this man right now? And we were like all compassionate and empathetic, and then the leader stopped us and said, you know, that, that kind of makes me sick, because what I'm hearing this guy share is passive-aggressive bitterness and um, unforgiveness, and he went down the list. And we were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy is calling this man out. Now, in retrospect, the leader was right. This man was using this group to essentially dump stuff on and he wasn't owning anything. So he, the leader was right, but wow, to have his darkness called out in front of us, it scared the heck out of all of us. But once again, be, uh, my soul responded to this. There was something in me that knew that what he was doing, which was dragging the dark stuff out into the light in each of us, I desperately needed. So I was both uh, incredibly afraid and incredibly drawn to this guy at the same time, because I knew the dark things in my soul needed to be exposed. So the risk that I took was to stay in that group when about half the group left. And then after staying in the group, the other risk I took was that I was going to be honest to the best that I could about everything that happened in that group, no matter what happened. And because of that, um, this man did surface many things that I had hidden in the darkness, but I, once they were out in the light, they weren't so fearsome anymore. I didn't have to expend all this energy hiding those things anymore. It led to the ability for me to have a deeper, more intimate connection to my wife and to others. It was really a tipping point in my life, because if you can't risk and you can't um, offer your vulnerability in relationship, then the relationship is always going to be shallow. And so... Risk is the portal into greater depth and intimacy. Now, what, what forms does the risk take? Well, it, ri- risk may mean 
risking more in prayer. I've said before that my risky practice of prayer now is that whenever I pray for somebody, I ask Jesus first. I pause and take the time to ask Jesus first, how should I pray for this person? And then I wait for his guidance, and then I take a shot based on his guidance. That's how I pray for the person. This is now a common, normal practice for me, but it embeds risk in every—every time I pray for somebody, I'm risking. And it leads to greater intimacy with Jesus and also greater intimacy with the person I'm praying for. Uh, In my uh, uh, interview with John Eldridge uh, from two weeks ago, two episodes ago, uh, if you remember, he talked about having a conversational relationship with Jesus is sort of a central necessity, um, and that it's, it's, it's really at the core of our growing intimacy with Jesus. You have to have a conversational relationship with him. It's the, what the disciples had with Jesus while, while they could see and touch and feel Jesus, um, but Jesus said, hey, this is going to get even better now because when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll be inside you. Um, have, he'll be able to have a conversation with you at any moment, at any time. And Jesus is essentially rubbing his hands together with glee, saying, I can't wait. I can't wait for the time is coming when we can relate all the time. So this conversational relationship with Jesus um, is full of risk, of course, as well. A lot of people never develop a conversational relationship with Jesus because they are unwilling to take the risk to ask and listen and respond, to, to wait for guidance and then act on it, they're unwilling to take that risk. And John Eldridge is saying, this is absolutely crucial for a growing intimacy. We have to risk and, and adventure in this area. Uh, it, it might mean risk might mean checking in with the Holy Spirit as much as you check in with your friends when it comes to decisions to make, plans that you're making, um, hunches that you have, problems and challenges that you have. Do you check in with the Holy Spirit as much as you check in with your friends or your spouse? Do you stop yourself and say, I think I should check in with the one who has all of the wisdom in the world also in the midst of this? Do you check in? Do you ask? Do you knock? Do you listen? I think risk can mean leaning into risk with friends rather than away from it. I just met with my daughter Lucy for lunch uh, at college. It's the first time I've seen her in a month. Um, She was off to college, and then I was off to Kenya, and so I uh, I scurried up to uh, Fort Collins, is about 20 minutes away, and had lunch with her today. And she was sharing with me some relational challenges that she's having to deal with and wondering what, what she should do. When she invited my advice, I said, lean into risk. You're, you're going to be tempted here to uh, uh, maintain the status quo in this relationship by mitigating risk wherever you can. But if you're going to have any hope of this relationship being healthy and good, you're going to have to start taking risks to tell the truth. And a lot of our conversation was about what will it take to take healthy risks in these relationships so that health can emerge from them. Well, the risk is that, that, that when you take a risk like that, um, the person might say, our relationship is over. So the real, the real question there is, is it going to die a slow death or a quick one? Because the only way forward into healthy relationship is risk. So lean into risk with your friends rather than away from it. And another way you could risk is to plunge into new experiences with new people, because on the face of it, that's risky. And that's actually a good segue 
into what we're going to do next week. Guess what, gang? Uh, the Becky Nader will be back next week. We're going to check in with uh, Becky, my former partner in crime on this podcast. She's in Oregon right now. She's about so six months, seven months into a very risky journey, a solo journey, where so many things have happened along the way, and risk has become like breathing for her. So we're going to check in with the Becky Nader and find out uh, what new experiences and new people have been brought into her life and what the result has been in her relationship with Jesus. So that'll be next week. So don't miss it. That'll be episode 38. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're just looking for the podcast section in Season 3, Episode 37. And don't forget, we'll have a link there for you to check out our Friends of God Discipleship Experience resource. See if it might be something you want to do with your small group, or maybe in a church class you can get a free sample to see what it's like. Just remember, uh, I was deeply involved in the team that created this, and so much of this approach to discipleship is, is what we've talked about today. It's all through the lens of a growing friendship. So I think if you pick up a, a sample of this and get this Friends of God kit for your small group or for your church, you will discover uh, a radical deepening of discipleship in your, in your circle of friends and in your church. So please do check that out. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll talk again next time.